The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Matt, you know, I, I think I'm probably like a lot of people trying to figure out what exactly happened in Poland I thought you were going to say yesterday. with FTX. No, we're going to go a little bit, 10, 15 minutes free here of that. We're going to talk some real stuff. Uh, NATO and Poland see no intentional Russian strike as crisis eases. That's the Bloomberg Phew. News uh, headline. But I need to get the expert opinion, the boots on the ground. And for that, we turn to Maria Tadeo. Uh, she's a Europe reporter, Bloomberg. Uh, you're not Bloomberg Opinion anymore. You're back to Bloomberg News, I believe. But No, I'm not, guys. Yes, I know. I, see, I caught that. I caught that, Maria, uh, in our notes. So I, you're not a Bloomberg. You're back, back at Bloomberg News, thankfully, because we need your objective reporting here. What do we know now about what happened in Poland yesterday? No opinion, just facts. And I think what Matt Miller, is, if, if I believe that was his, his side of relief uh, that, I, that I overheard. Yes, it was. That, that really, yeah, I think it really actually encapsulates a lot of the, the responses and, 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 and some of the text messages that I've been uh, exchanging with uh, a number of diplomats uh, today in, in, in Brussels. Uh, there was real concern yesterday when that AP headline hit two people dead in Poland, uh, a Russian missile that went over the, the border into Poland. Of course, uh, not to give anyone a history lesson here, but we know that Poland is a member of NATO, is a member of the European Union, has a very, very difficult relationship with Russia for a number of historical uh, reasons that I'm sure Matt Miller also uh, well knows well, going back to the Nazi-Soviet pact. Uh, this is a very uh, tense relationship that they have. And, of course, this could have been a real game changer if Russia had indeed intentionally uh, now targeted uh, Poland. Well, we've heard... Uh, Even accidentally, Poland. right? Because he, he, the, the initial, I think, report, everybody thought, OK, Russia accidentally lobbed a missile into Poland because they're fighting close to the border. If they don't, obviously, the Ukrainian soldiers will amass there as kind of a, a safe zone. Um, that still would be bad. And now it seems like everyone is trying as hard as possible to come up with any other possibility. You know, maybe it was a Ukrainian air defense missile that knocked the Russian missile into Poland. Maybe it was a Ukrainian air defense missile itself that caused the explosion in Poland. So what do we know? Indeed. And, and you know, just to go to Trace and actually answer the question. Uh, yes, basically, that's what we heard uh, very early on today from President Biden. A lot of people that I was texting at 7 a.m. in the morning were kind of very relieved by that, where he said the trajectory of this, uh, well, missile or air defense potentially, too, would suggest that it did not come directly uh, from Russia. Then, of course, you have the Polish uh, themselves come out and say, we do not believe this was intentional. And then NATO suggesting, in fact, what happened here is that on a day where Ukraine was pounded uh, by Russian missiles, and just to give you a little bit of color here, it was so bad that even neighboring countries like Moldova lost 
power. Because mm. sometimes we talk about the war in Ukraine, but just just imagine that in your head for a moment. It was so bad that even the neighbors had blackouts. They had power down, and they're not even related or fighting this war. And essentially what happens is, you know, very well, air defense will try to blow up a missile in the air, but then, of course, it falls down, and you never know where it's going to fall, the damage it can do uh, on the fall. And then, allegedly, well, today, NATO is suggesting this is exactly what happened. Ukrainian air defense shot it down, but then fell on the Polish uh, side. And for a lot of people, that's massive relief. And a real reminder, by the way, that this war is in a very active phase, and the risk of a spillover are many and very real, by the way. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I noticed yesterday, Maria, uh, after the initial reports, was the number of, I guess, tweets coming from countries all in that region, all around NATO, voicing very strong support for Poland going forward. So, I'm and they sure and they have to. I they, mean, they have as, to. A, as a NATO member. To. If they invoke Article 5, then, you know, NATO has to go to their defense. Now, before that, as a precursor, you invoke Article 4. And the question, I think, is, will Poland today or this week invoke Article 4? What do we know on that? Uh, You know, in my view, they won't, Matt. I think uh, the, 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 the version that everyone has agreed with or that kind of sticks with is you have U.S. intelligence suggesting this is not Russia, uh, you have NATO come out today, the Secretary General say this is air defense. Nobody, by the way, is blaming Ukraine on that, too. They said this is not Ukraine's fault. These are the risks that happen when Russia, knowing full well, by the way, uh, they're very close to the Polish border, can actually happen. Nobody's blaming Ukraine, but I think uh, what I get today is that there's a sense that this was so close to the brink, everyone wants a breather. Let's take a step back. Okay, I just, yeah, and we, we yep. reported that the president of Poland, Andrzej Duda, said his country is unlikely to invoke Article 4. I have seen a Fox News headline that says they're expected to. Oh, okay. So right, we'll uh, this, once again, is one of those confusing situations, and I guess it'll be, uh, we have to wait for the smoke to clear to some extent. Maria, what, what should be the next data point that we should look for in the next couple of days? Look, I think in terms of data point, uh, this, this, uh, if anything, and, and for a lot of Europeans this morning, this is really the reality check. Yep. Uh, we've kind of gotten used to this idea that, yes, there's a war going on in Ukraine. Yes, it's brutal. Yes, people die. Yes, the fight is on. Yes, Vladimir Putin can be ruthless. Uh, yes, Ukrainians are fighting back. But today, I think for a lot of Europeans, was a real reminder that the war is happening at the heart of Europe. Matt, you lived in Berlin. I mean, you know the geography of this place. This is really in the center of Europe. This is not just somewhere in the middle of nowhere, far from everything. And I think you alluded to this uh, in your question. The Eastern Europeans yesterday came out in force saying, we support NATO, we are NATO, we stand with Ukraine, and we stand with right. Poland. And for them, it's always this idea that Russia is always a threat. Yep. Maria, thank you so much for your time. We know you're super busy. You're based in Brussels, so you're right in the middle of all of what's happening in Europe. That's Maria Tadeo. She is our uh, outstanding European reporter uh, for Bloomberg News, getting the latest on Ukraine, and it appears they uh, have avoided the worst-case scenario. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
talk a little commodities here. And if you want to talk commodities in a serious way on the Bloomberg terminal, you type in BI space COMD. That brings up uh, the Bloomberg Intelligence Commodities Dashboard. It's got it all that you could ever need. The best research analysis on the street, the best data for energy, metals, ags, all that kind of stuff. And now cryptos. And the person who kind of runs this dashboard or runs our commodities research is Mike McGlone. Joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Mike, before we get to crypto, just give me one real commodities thing that I need to focus on here. Am I buying pork bellies? Am I buying corn? What am I doing here? Gold. Gold. Um, <clears throat> let's bring it back to a little history. In 1976, I did a, a report for social studies class on the energy crisis. Oh, and who the, doesn't? And, well, exactly. And I just remember the key theme back there when you're an impressionable 12-year-old was we don't have enough supply, we're gonna run out of crude oil, and we're gonna go into recession. That was 76. It's the same thing every time. I remember hearing it you know, 10 years ago, peak supply, and again, again this year. Oh yeah, peak Charlie, supply. Uh, <clears throat> who was that, Charlie Weiser, uh, um, peak oil, just never yeah, kind of happened. It's peak consumption happened in this country. We peaked around 2005, and it's the same thing. So I think what's happening now is we're entering, I think, one of the greatest macroeconomic resets of our lifetimes, and it was somewhat spiked by Crude oil spiking, baiting the Fed to tighten more. Now, crude oil is doing what it always does, is going back down. So I see it still heading towards 50. It's around 86 now. And it's doing what it always does. We're heading to a significant recession. And this is Bloomberg economics across the board. And the key thing I ask myself is what stops this? And right now, it's not going to be the Fed. But how, so Bloomberg economics does say we're going to have, a, well, we have a 100% chance yes. of a recession, <laughs> right? Which is not so. But um, is it going to be a deep long recession or is it going to be you know like a short sharp shock is it going to be shallow and hardly noticeable that, that's the key question and yeah. my bias is how can we avoid a deep recession after what happened this is historic now we had the biggest pump in money supply ever on the back of the plague and we're now we're getting the midst of the biggest dump ever on a global scale so where is the demand pool going to come from clearly not china clearly not europe and our model is 100 percent for the u.s so to me this is the big one and right now typically by this stage we'd see signs of fed easing on the forward curve at least a year from now and it's still at tightening but why do you say why would you buy gold here especially as inflation comes down and uh, monetary policy gets tight everywhere. Nobody can open the fiscal gates anymore. Not yet, but it's typically a sign that overall gold is one of the best performing commodities on a total return basis, most notably versus crude oil. But it's when you see that signs of the Fed, as, as Nora Rubini says, wimping out. And it's also a key thing, piggybacking my colleague Ira Jersey, who's nailed this year. He thinks yields have peaked. If that's the case, if that sledgehammer is done pounding, I'm not saying they're going to ease, gold should be one of the best performers as we tilt towards a recession. I so, so as we get closer to a pause or yeah. even, dare I say, a pivot, gold will soar on that. Yeah, well, it should. I mean, that's been the key thing holding it down this year. And again, we're, the signs are already there. Gold seems like it's bottomed pretty good from that. It got down around 1600 for a while. Now the dollars has peaked in the short term. But that's the macro. It's that's pounding sledgehammer on a, on a scale of one to 10. That's a 10 everywhere, Fed pounding hard. And it's already still showing signs of pivoting. And oil to 50. Yeah, so the key thing about what? that is now I say Matt's is I mean, that he's Brent? got the big truck, so he needs oil. Is that Brent? Is that by the, the way, I, you know, I gotta say, even my wife's hybrid, yeah, as soon as the electric power ends, you know, after 40, 50, 60 miles or whatever, right, then she gets the same mileage as I get in my truck. (laughs) But she has it. I have the same thing. I have a plug-in hybrid. I've had it for almost 10 years. It's a wonderful vehicle. The Volt. We talked about that. Yeah, I love the the Volt. The thing about 50 is it's really not profound. 
if we have this recession, which we view as 100%. Now, it's not just U.S. You look at demand pull, you look imports from China have rolled over. Now, people say that's because of COVID lockdowns. But if you see what's happening with the property crisis and the political situation, that's bad. It's rolling, rolling over. We pointed out for years. U.S. unleaded gas peaked on a 52-week basis, unleaded gas demand, in June, which was prime driving season. So that's rolling over, just like 2008. $50 is still above the U.S. cost of production, the world's largest producer. Average cost of production in this country is around 40. And also the key thing that people are missing is stocks to use. It's bottoming. Stocks to use is just, um, it's a sign of the stocks relative to demand. In the U.S., it's bottoming. And in the global base, it's bottoming, typically a sign of peak in prices. But it's also not profound. 50 is basically about the average price since the big breakdown in 2014. For a barrel of what? West Texas Intermediate? WTI. Yeah. WTI. It's a key thing also recently, Brent reached good resistance around 100 bucks a barrel. And I checked out the open interest, plunging open interest in futures, which short covering you want to talk crypto i mean we held off as long as we possibly otherwise well, otherwise i'm going into pork bellies i thought we kind of <laughs> i thought we kind of were i mean so crypto affects all of these assets and you do see it as small as it is relative to obviously giant markets like um oil and uh fx it really has affected for example um peter cheer from academy securities the other day was saying the FTX blow up was responsible for a crappy 10 year auction. Oh, that was, it's the contagion. Yeah. I mean, it's the fastest horse in the race. And Matt, you nailed this back in January. You would get on the air and you'd point out, well, Bitcoin's moving and it was moving on Saturday and Sunday and gave you an indication where things are going. Obviously, it started going down. But it's not just Bitcoin, it's crypto. So I like to point out the Bloomberg Galaxy crypto index has been still a good performer. It went up too far too fast. But Bitcoin is the number one. And it's that contagion factor. So I saw my other colleagues in BI start right about this means people are more likely to hit that trigger stop. And I look at it, I'm an ex-trader, ex ex-hedge fund guy and cover those guys on the phones. And they're just sitting there with their algorithm systems with their value at risk models. And if it triggers something, they'll hit a stop. And it it's, the, it's the domino effect. By the way, I don't know how many times we've uh, left Bitcoin for dead. Um, in, I've been covering it for 10 years, and every, uh, every time we have one of these drawdowns, they are huge, 75, 80%. You know, um, people are like, oh, that's the end of Bitcoin. And now, you know, the reputational damage is going to kill the whole thing. But I just can't believe it will. I completely agree with you there. But in the meantime, it's the hammer hitting hard. And I like to use the example, Bitcoin's like the dollar. It never goes down a lot unless it goes up a lot first. It has to get those new highs. So what's Bitcoin did, cryptos did. We got really expensive last year. We're backing up. But look at Ethereum. Just a couple of years ago, it was trading around 100 bucks a barrel, $100. I'm sorry, right now it's 1200 So it's up 10x. It's gone up way too much. But it's part of that revolution of the system. I look at it like futures, what futures did to finance and like what ETFs did for investment. It's there, and just right now we're in that, yes, we got too speculative, excessive, we got silly, you know, people like FTX got extended. Imagine how, much, uh, imagine how much ether you could fit into a barrel. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All of it. Uh, all of it, exactly. All right. <laughs> we need to get you an audience with uh, Jamie Dimon. That would be a fun conversation to watch. Mike McClone versus Jamie Dimon. Yeah, well, I, just, you know just what, just he, crypto. He, he, I guess Jamie Dimon thinks it's worthless. He said that. He thinks that means it's going to zero, but when? All right, we'll see. All right, Mike McGlone, senior commodities strategist, Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's based out of Miami. We got him a couple days up here in New York, so we got him in the studio, which is good stuff. I want to get right to our next guest, Fernando Valle. He's a senior energy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And, Fernando, we were just talking to Mike McGlone, who covers commodities for BI. And, he, you know, he's been out there with this 
He thinks oil goes to $50 a barrel before it goes to 150 Is that kind of what you're hearing from the big companies th- that you talk to? Well, <clears throat> Paul, I, I kind of tend to agree with Mike that that, that is definitely a possibility. But the companies themselves, they, they typically refuse to answer questions on their oil prices outlook. Uh, what they will say is that there has been a, a lack of investment in, in growth, um, and which we agree with. And if you look from 2015 to, uh, to today, uh, investment levels have been uh, about 23% below uh, the period before, preceding that, the 20, uh, 2009 to 2014 period. So that's a supply side issue. And Mike's argument is that demand is going to fall off a cliff if we go into a big global recession. Um, how much of a concern is that? Especially with China uh, opening, because it seems like if China opens back up, that should be a real boost to demand. Yeah, I would argue that demand is already feeling some of those crimps. When you look at Europe, for example, uh, you know, a lot of the ways that they've managed to refill their inventories has been by reducing uh, industrial activity, uh, smelters, uh, cement plants, refineries, you name it. Uh, and I agree the the China reopening theoretically would be a, a big boost to consumption. The question is when and how they reopen. And then the, the second part is, as we saw with our own reopenings, there are still effects on your economic activity. Remember, the Chinese consumer uh, has significant leverage. Uh, they also have uh, endured uh, now the pain of lockdowns and that strained savings. And then you get into a, an issue where uh, the real estate market in China is significantly leveraged as are the provinces and financial systems to the, this real estate issue. And they are huge consumers of not just oil directly, but also uh, plastics, which are petrochemicals and energy in general. Hey, Fernando, I'm looking at the S&P 500 energy sector index. Boy, the stocks have just ripped this year up close to 70%. When, when you talk to your institutional investor clients, I mean, is the thinking the money's been made, this trade has played out, or is there more room to go on the energy space? Yeah, but it, we've doubled uh, the weight of energy in the S&P 500 since 2021. And uh, we start to see folks saying the easy money has been made uh, because, as you said, the stocks have ripped. Um, we disagree on a part of that just because uh, the free cash flow its story is continuing. Even if we get down to $60, 50 is a little bit more challenging. But even at $60, if you look at how they've cleaned up their balance sheets, um, in the case of the Europeans, they've resized their dividends um, and they've taken costs out, out of the system, they, these companies can maintain their dividends now, even in a $50 scenario, no problem. So their distribution will continue. And then you have companies like Chevron and Exxon who actually are building so much cash, they could be net cash uh, as of the, the second uh, quarter of this year. Uh, they'll continue to buy back. That's that, that's part of their strategy is if prices dip. And I guess alluding to your previous uh, question, you know, less about what they say, but what they do, they're building such significant cash reserves that they could either buy back stock or uh, acquire struggling producers if there is a dip in, in oil prices. Uh, so we, we think that there is still room to go just because of how strong the balance sheets are and because we see in the second half of, the, of next year the supply gap emerging. By the way, how well is Europe set up for this winter? Uh, better than 
we would have expected, but because they've reduced consumption. Um, we, we also had the mild weather in October that's helped uh, lower the, 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 uh, the draws and in inventories, but you know, they may still have to refill if winter is as cold as is currently expected, uh, which is slightly above average. And we're starting to see a shift in, in weather patterns here in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Refill no, from, in the from where? And from their current levels. So they'll, 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 no, I mean, where are they going to get current, it? Oh, well, LNG primarily. Uh, and there, there will be, especially if Freeport comes back online, there will be enough likely that they won't, uh, they won't go cold. They may have to, again, restrict economic activity in order to make it last. The bigger question is where the inventories end up at the end of winter 2023, and then how does that uh, look filling uh, filling inventories into the the following winter? Because there will be less capacity uh, from Russia. Uh, there will be even less ability to refill those inventories at the clip that they did this year. So, Fernando, you follow the big big integrated oil companies. Are they spending money to look for more energy? like drill in different places and stuff like that? Or are they just kind of keeping that in check and building up all the cash flow that they promised? They, they are. They, they uh, raised spending by about 8% relative to 2021. Uh, they, we expect that part of the, their increased free cash flow will go towards new exploration and development. There is an issue, though, that, uh, you know, when you look at in investment in North America, it's tempered by the the push to decarbonize and you, you look at uh, uh, California banning ICE vehicles by 2035, President Biden speaking uh, similarly, Canada instituting a, a large carbon tax and a renewable fuel standard. Uh, the investments in North America become more challenging. And then when you go elsewhere, there just hasn't been a lot of money spent on exploration. So there has to be a shift of where that money is spent and we need to find uh, new provinces to develop uh, Brazil and Guiana are two of those, but they are they aren't sufficient to to make up for the lack of growth that w- we expect to see from from U.S. shale and uh, lack of investment in other parts of the world. Right. All right. Good stuff as always. And Fernando, you still owe me. You need to get me out of one of those oil rigs out in like the Gulf of Mexico. I want to do a. Trip he owes you there. a trip to a rig. I think so. I keep telling him he's got to get me out there. I think that would be pretty pretty cool. To totally. Go, yeah, like the beginning of Armageddon. Yeah. You know, when Bruce Willis yeah, is exactly. chasing around uh, Ben Affleck yeah, with a shotgun. That's so, yeah, Fernando owes me that. Fernando Valley, senior analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been covering energy space for decades, and we love to get his uh, global view. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference, better known as COP27, will be finishing up this Friday. Uh, It's been a two-week conference in Egypt. And one of the key issues there in terms has been food insecurity. Uh, And I think with the war in Ukraine, that's becoming an even bigger issue. We kind of want to talk a little bit about that with David Friedberg, founder of the Production Board. So, David... 
give us your sense or give us your view of food insecurity on a global scale. Kind of where are we today? How did we get here? And maybe where should we be thinking about going over the next several years? Yeah, so the world food supply, the store of food, uh, typically gives us about 90 days of calories in terms of what's consumed around the world. And the Ukraine crisis has caused um, several acute shortfalls in a lot of the key inputs that drive agricultural production. So the price for urea, which is like the nitrogen fertilizer that's used, is primarily driven by natural gas prices, which, as we all know, have spiked with the conflict. And that price is 2 to 3x where it was before the conflict began. Same with phosphates and potash. They're also elevated. And so we're seeing not just the acute food um, supply chain problem because wheat can't be exported from Russia, Ukraine, but we're seeing this longer-range problem start to manifest where the amount of fertilizer that's being used to farm around the world is going down because it's gotten so expensive. And when fertilizer goes down, food production goes down. And when you only have 90 days of calories on Earth, the folks that are most worried about that, that can afford to buy more food, buy up all the crops, buy up all the grains. And so then we see the rich nations stock up, prices go through the roof, and the poorer nations like Egypt, Tunisia, all the countries in the Horn of Africa start to suffer because they no longer can afford access to these crops and these grains, and people start to march towards starvation. And so the U.N. is estimating that an incremental 300 million people are now marching towards starvation because of this shortfall. And it's like a slow-moving train. It didn't happen overnight. It's that production levels are declining, availability is declining, rich nations are stocking up on grain, and the poorer nations are slowly starting to eat through their grain and, and struggle immensely. So we could see, uh, you know, going from a low point of about 550 million people that around the world were declared undernourished, um, suddenly that number could spike to over a billion. So uh, and so, this is a, a real humanitarian crisis. And I mean, the uh, I mean, the interesting takeaway I think is that not only is Vladimir Putin, you know, endangering the lives of 100 million people in Ukraine with his war there, but also possibly pushing another billion people on planet Earth towards star- starvation. The whole conflict is causing a massive set of unintended maybe unintended, second- and third-order consequences, and this being one of, I think, the most significant but of a non-economic nature. What can be done um, about it, by the way, David? Yeah. What uh, is there anything, you know, short of stopping Putin, is there anything the rest of the world can do to uh, try and prevent this starvation crisis? The U.N. has an agency called the World Food Program, uh, and the World Food Program has asked for a budget increase to $20 billion a year which they're then going to be using to effectively buy grain on the open market from the, you know, at the higher prices and make them available uh, to the nations that are most in need. That's kind of an acute solution. They're also managing the logistics of getting wheat supplies out of Russia, Ukraine, out of those ports and getting them to the nations in need. So that work is underway. It's very expensive, very difficult work. The U.S. is now covering, I believe, 40 to 50 percent of that budget uh, for the U.N., uh, to drive that, that, that availability. The longer-range problem is, I think, needs to be resolved not just by saying, hey, we can make more fertilizer, which we need to do, um, but the prices are high. But there's a lot of technologies in agriculture that can increase productivity without using as much fertilizer. 
And so, we're, you know, but the problem is that's not going to resolve in the next year. But over time, we do believe that we should be able to see a doubling of ag productivity around the world through a number of novel technologies that are that are in market or, you know, starting to kind of come to market. So what role do you guys at the at the uh, production board play? Do you invest in, in some of these companies, these technologies? Yeah, we're investors in agricultural technology businesses. We're also in the process of taking the largest agricultural retailer in Latin America called Laboro Agro uh, Public via our SPAC vehicle. And we think that's a very strategic transaction because Latin America, the acreage to produce food in Latin America is almost as large as the U.S., and Latin America is the largest ag exporting market in the world. And corn farmers in Brazil are getting half the yield of what corn farmers in the United States are getting with equivalent soil and equivalent sunlight and water. So by bringing new technology to that market and teaching farmers how to better use that technology, better use the products and tools that they have, um, we should be able to see a massive increase in productivity. Brazil is already estimated to be the largest ag export market in the world ahead of the U.S. in the next few years. Um, so we're very excited about Latin America and the potential there. Uh, it, it's a key part of the economy. It's very well supported uh, by the government. And, um, and and we think that that can be a great unlock in terms of global calorie availability, which is critically needed right now. All right, David, good stuff. We learned a lot there. Uh, keep in touch with us and let us know how this is developing. Going to be a long, obviously is a long-term issue. David Friedberg, founder of the production board, giving us uh, some thoughts on what is a key topic at COP27, which is food insecurity. And unfortunately, the war in Iran is exacerbating what was already in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine. Thank you. What was already a a very difficult problem on on a global scale. I don't know, man, this thing about this economy, everybody's kind of got a job who wants one. They're spending money out there. Retail sales came in today a little bit better than expected, a gain of 1.3 percent month to month. But consensus was one percent. But but Target, a I know. horrible miss on the top and bottom line, cutting their forecasts. Um, I just don't understand what's going on. Maybe uh, they just missed it. Well, no, because they say that at least shoppers, I mean, Walmart, their business are pulling back. I don't know. Walmart had good numbers. Let's talk to a professional about this. Uh, Anji Solanke, uh, National Director of Retail Services for the U.S. at Collier's. That is a Nasdaq traded company. Uh, C-I-G-I is the symbol. Anji, so help us square the circle here. We had some good retail sales numbers. We had some good Walmart stuff. But then Target missed. Is it a Target-specific issue, do you think? Or is it just depending upon what consumer you're looking at? Yeah, I would say definitely that um, it's it's a little confusing yet disappointing because we are seeing some strong numbers. So we did a bit of a deep dive into Target specifically. And this is not a target only. So what what's happening here is a couple of things. One, if you look at target, they maintain a very balanced sales mix, you know, between food and general merchandise. And if you look at their year-over-year sales growth, it's still at a positive 3.4%. However, they are starting to see a slowdown as it relates to discretionary items. And when you look at discretionary items, those impulse buy um, items, they're going to have, you know, a higher margin, and therefore they're going to see some loss in profit there. In addition to discounting the inventory that they had and acquired um, a little too much of. 
Yeah, so we uh, heard from the CEO at Target, Brian Cornell. He said in a statement that um, guests' shopping behavior increasingly is, is increasingly being impacted by inflation, which is clear, rising interest rates, I got it, and economic uncertainty. Uncertainty. Why isn't that hurting Walmart guests? Uh, or, or is it hurting guests across the industry and Walmart just did a better job of uh, putting out its numbers? You know, what it is between the Walmart and Target, it's um, a couple of really interesting facts. One is that if you look at Target's food sales, so food is definitely something that, you know, people are going to continue to, to buy, right? We need to eat and stay healthy, et cetera. But if you look at Target food sales in terms of historical percentages versus Walmart, Target food sales represents about 20%, whereas Walmart's is 55%. So when we're in this, call it inflationary, um, you know, uh, mindset and being cautious, we're going to spend on food. But I think Walmart's numbers are better because they have a higher percentage in terms of food sales. Anji, you know, Matt's got his holiday shopping already done, but I, I haven't even thought about it. So give us a sense of how you think holiday sales will be this year what's the expectation that some of the retailers are putting out there yeah so what we're seeing right now is um in terms of holiday sales it's really interesting it's going to be um you know we're, we're kind of right now looking at still an average spend on holiday shopping around 850 dollars on gifts which is you know been the average for the past 10 years um you know we're still seeing what we're calling this you know, um, home wealth effect where people are still feeling a little good about, you know, that home equity that they have. And so, um, you know, with that, you know, people are going to spend a little bit more. So those that have, you know, you know, or comfort level of spending a bit more with um, higher incomes, we're actually going to see a 20% rise in, in holiday spend. So we're going to, I, it's not going to be an extreme boom or boost, but we're going to still feel a good positive effect through through the next two months in terms of holiday spending and gift giving and getting together with families. I've noticed a couple of concerning um, shipping news items. FedEx, for example, its freight units putting workers on furlough in some U.S. markets. That adds to the evidence we've seen of a, a cargo slowdown um, that evidence is really the the, the uh, shipping rates um, getting weaker and weaker, framing a, a real problem for this industry in 2023. But what does that say about sales, retail sales? I you know I, I think you know there's a couple things that a lot of the retailers are still kind of going through, as I mentioned earlier, the the um, additional inventory. That inventory is still going through its correction. So there's still, enough inventory to at least look as though when you're walking into the stores, you're seeing inventory, you're going to, you're going to buy, you're going to shop, you're going to spend. It's, I think it's, it's that correction that's occurring that will occur through the end of 2023. And there, hopefully by that point, we'll start to see some adjustments as it relates to items being, you know, um, shipped and sent to the U.S. All right, Anji, great stuff. Really appreciate it. That kind of bringing into focus kind of what we're seeing out there in retail land. Anji Solanke, uh, National Director of Retail Services for the United States at Collier's. And Collier's International Group, it is a publicly traded symbol. CIGI uh, is the symbol. It's got about a $4 billion market cap. So they're out there uh, doing their thing here. So retail sales numbers, you know, came in pretty solid today. So it kind of 
and if you have the gar- the um, I guess the, the food, food sales the share food sales that's yeah, big so. that you know that's what I guess that's the difference between what we saw from Walmart and what we saw from Target today. We really need to get an update on what's going on in the Ukraine. It looks like the world, you know, kind of dodged the worst case scenario or bad case scenario yesterday with that uh, missile falling into Poland. But let's get the latest with Mick Mulroy, co-founder of the Lobo Institute. He's a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East at the U.S. Department of Defense. He was at the CIA for like 19 years, former U.S. Marine Infantry Officer. So the guy has done it all. Mick, it, again, it kind of looks like the world kind of dodged a, a little bit of a bullet there yesterday. It could have been a much worse scenario. But what's your latest take on what's kind of evolving over in the Ukraine? So good to be with you, and I think you're exactly right. We did dodge a bullet, and I think that's a testament to taking the time to make the assessment, look at the radars, and determine exactly what happened. And it looks like, although it was a Russian-made missile, it was it was fired uh, from a Ukrainian air and missile defense system, which may have actually hit the incoming missile, and then in, from that trajectory, which is really impossible to determine, it came down into Poland uh, and caused uh, death. So it's a horrible event, certainly for the people who were killed and their families, but uh, it did look does now look like it wasn't an intended act by Russia, so it wouldn't require Article 5, which is this... Uh, common defense under NATO. Although even if it was, you know, um, a, a missile fired by Russian troops that accidentally went into Poland, you know, that's got to be expected when they're fighting along the border, and they are, right? Um, you know, it, exactly. does, it, does it matter if it was, you know, with intent? I mean, if, if Vladimir Putin wages a war in Ukraine, and then it start, and then he starts killing people in uh, Poland and Moldova and other neighboring countries, um, don't we have to hold them accountable for that? Well, that's exactly right. And I think uh, both the president of Poland and all the NATO leaders have said this is uh, directly caused by Russia's unlawful and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. So they are the reason for this. They've, the Ukrainians have had to defend themselves against a sustained barrage of missiles targeting civilian infrastructure in violation of the law of armed conflict. So this is definitely Russia's fault. And this the consequences of firing at targets near the border of Poland make the likelihood that some missiles, either theirs or the ones trying to defend, are going to come down in Poland. So uh, the consequences, I think, obviously will be different uh, since we I think right now the belief is it wasn't intentional, it wasn't Russia. Uh, but certainly economic, diplomatic consequences, I still think, are in order. But, it, it, but as you said in the first uh, question, it looks like the most significant uh, concern, which was an escalation into a conflict between NATO and Russia, is not the case. Mick, you know, it, this past couple of days just shows all the risks or, or some of the risks that are out there that, you know, it's not on the, strictly the battlefield. It can, it can spill over and get even deeper and much more broad. Um, so the question for a lot of folks is, how does this end? I mean, is it up to the West to try to come up with some way to give Putin some way to save face and, and get out of there? So it ultimately is up to the Ukrainians as well. They are the ones that are fighting the fight. They are the ones that are taking all the losses and the consequences, essentially. We're supporting them. Right now, the counteroffenses that they've launched are successful, and it is 
pretty apparent that Russia cannot even keep the gains that they had made, let alone getting uh, new territory. So they're losing. And that's a, that's a dangerous position to be in because uh, it's, it's unlikely that a, a, a president uh, of Russia, President Putin, can withstand losing a war and maintaining power. So how does it end? Uh, I think uh, right now our position should be it ends with Russia leaving all uh, all of uh, Ukrainian territory, uh, them agreeing to reparations for the damage they cause, and uh, that those that have committed these atrocities be held responsible uh, in an international criminal court. So I don't see that happening, but I think that will be the position of the Ukrainians and hopefully supported by NATO. I, I, what what is your take on um, combatants targeting civilian infrastructure? I mean, we wouldn't have. I think it's probably a decent argument that we wouldn't have won World War II um, when we did if we hadn't, you know, firebombed, carpet bombed Dresden and and knocked out um, two Japanese cities with nuclear weapons. It seems like, in fact, all major wars um, involve targeting civilian infrastructure. So it's weird to say that it's illegal. Um, isn't it something that, you know, happens in war? So it certainly did, and all the examples you just brought up are good examples of that. But at the end of World War II, we had what we called the Geneva and Hague Conventions, and the whole purpose of which was to avoid what we saw in World War II with this massive uh, deaths of civilians and the targeting of infrastructures. So that was a international decision, and these are conventions that countries signed on to. Uh, so we would avoid some of the most extreme atrocities we saw in previous wars. So th- th- currently— I mean, Mick, uh, if we went to war against Russia, let's just yeah. say, um, wouldn't we be smart to target their civilian infrastructure? So one could make a you know the cold dual-purpose argument that you have to knock off the power because the power obviously— has an effect on the opposition's military capabilities. Deliberately targeting civilians themselves is is obviously a war crime and atrocity, and I certainly would never uh, support that from my own country. Uh, but and also, it's important to point out that Ukraine was the one that was attacked. Russia was the one who uh, did the invasion. They're the aggressor. It's against all international rules, norms, and conventions. True. So they have they have been in violation of the law since the day they stepped across the, the uh, Ukrainian border. Even if they wouldn't have done the atrocities that they have done, they still would have been in complete violation of the law of armed conflict. Hey, Mick, what, what what does it tell you when Russia announces that Kherson has now been annexed and then it seems like the next week they lose it? Are they really in that weak of a military position? I think so. I mean, you would you would think that if they— if they're going to illegally, of course, but annex something that they, that they didn't even think they could keep, it just uh, it's just fodder for everybody, uh, not just internationally, but also in Russia, that thinks this war is going completely the wrong direction. And I think you're seeing more and more and hearing more and more voices in Russia for an end to this conflict. Right. Maybe that is what causes Putin to ultimately decide to withdraw. Yep. All right. Great stuff, Mick. We really appreciate getting some of your time and your perspective. Of course, Mick Mulroy, he's the co-founder of the Lobo Institute, decades of experience in the U.S. military, uh, in intelligence at CIA, and then, of course, at the Department of Defense. So just an extraordinary background to get access to him. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.